and welcome to another episode of That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. My name is Joe Montague and I am your host and I hope you've all had a fantastic week. This week is episode five in the Ted Fletcher lecture series, which is uh, Perceptions in Record Production. Um, and you'll be pleased to know that this was recorded before my voice went a little bit hoarse. I've been at uh, the UK Guitar Show all weekend with my company Mojo Cables um, that I set up during lockdown and uh, lots of chatting to people over widdly guitar players um, has led to my voice sounding like this and potentially maybe a tiny bit of karaoke, but we would not need to get into that. Um, so yes, you'll be glad to know that the whole episode will not sound like this. Um, a huge thank you to everybody who gave us a review on Spotify. I really, really appreciate it. If you're listening on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts, if you wouldn't mind scrolling down and leaving leaving a, a star review, um, that would be much appreciated. It all helps with the sort of listings and popularity stuff to do with the podcast. I, I don't understand the mechanics of it all, but basically, you know what it, the, the drill is. The more likes, the more people get to see that this exists. Um, so yes, please do that. And if you have done already, thank you so much. Um, so before we dive into the episode, I'm just going to do the usual caveat that Ted asked me to do. Please bear in mind that these were recorded, not recorded, but written up to 20 years ago. And obviously technology has changed, although physics hasn't changed, but technology has changed since then. And uh, also bear in mind, Ted gave these lectures at universities where he was able to go off piste and make comments about the lectures as he went along which is obviously not able to do now um so just bear that in mind as it's going along um so there we go uh we'll just dive straight into the episode here we go episode number five perceptions in record production perceptions in record production Addresses at Art of Record Production Conference, University of Glamorgan, Cardiff, 14th of November, 2009. A few days ago, I was listening to a speaker at a conference where the PA system was suffering with a low-level hum. Actually, a nasty, typically raspy sort of ground loop problem, but with very low level. In fact, not enough to interfere with the performance of the speaker. And yet, I found that there was a problem with intelligibility... Listening carefully and thinking about it, the low-level buzz was making it difficult to interpret the words. Now, 50 years ago, Ray Dolby wrote lots about masking effects and how coherent sounds were capable of masking background noise. This, of course, is the foundation of the Dolby noise reduction systems. But here was an example of something quite the opposite, and yet potentially just as important in sound reproduction. It's definitely true that the presence of a continuous yet non-contiguous and non-coherent sound can interfere with the recognition in the brain, and that interfering sound does not have to be very loud at all. This set me thinking about related events and how this affects recording and reproduction, and one of the truisms of successful record production became much clearer. Music with holes in it is much more exciting. Putting it all together, it becomes obvious. The more cluttered a sound gets, the less pleasant it is. It's the presence of noises where there could be gaps that muddles and produces listening fatigue in a minor way, but not enough to not like the music. 
I believe that there is a great connection between intelligibility and musical acceptance. If something is unintelligible or garbled, then it is not pleasant. And the converse is true. It's fascinating that this effect was recognised by Joe Meek in 1962. He produced numerous successful records and a common factor was extreme dynamics in the intros, enough gaps to make the brain see it as a momentary silence, and so, in some way, clearing the brain. The records became instantly likeable, no matter what followed. Okay, well Telstar is the exception that proves the rule. That one works on another level. We used to think that spectral balance was the most important factor. Now I'm sure that it's less to do with spectra and more to do with dynamics. You could argue that Joe Meek was a real lunatic in his overuse of the compressor, so how could there be holes in his music? Now that's interesting too. By overusing the compressor in the way he did, the effect was to allow a transient through, the attack times were very slow, then the overloaded sidechain would act with typical overcompression, momentarily shutting everything down. Hence, huge dynamics, created by the device that in theory reduced dynamics. Now, it was about that time, in the mid-60s, that so-called stereo recording became the norm, and everyone here who is not as old as me will have grown up in a world where two-speaker listening is the only way. The original thinking behind it is simple and seems logical. We have two ears, so if we make recordings from two places and play them back so that they come from two speakers, then the result will be spatial sound, or stereo. If sound works simply, then this might be fine. But sound is not simple, and neither is our perception of it. Some simple physical facts are that low frequencies are basically non-directional. As frequency rises, so the sound becomes more directional. But above, say, 4 to 6 kHz, sounds interact with their own reflections and become less defined again. Just to add to the confusion, our ears are ferociously complex. We are taught about hearing sensitivity, the frequency range of about 40 to 14 kHz, the Fletcher-Munson hearing curves, and that's all good stuff but only a small part of the story. Sound appearing at our ears is first of all modified by tiny reflections around the pinna, the outer ear. It then goes through a sort of impedance changer, converting the sound from operating in air to operating in a fluid. That's the tiny bone structures in the middle ear. And then the sound excites tiny hairs in the cochlea, the inner ear. The hairs are differing lengths depending on position, fixed to nerve cells at one end, and fire impulses to the brain, which has learned to make sense of this biological data stream. And even that is a highly simplistic description of what's actually going on. The point I'm making is that the physical ear is actually just a pickup device, and hearing is more to do with what happens inside our heads. It's the interpretation of those nerve signals, not just from our ears, but also from all over our bodies. In a perfectly quiet environment, we really can hear a pin drop at 10 paces. And equally, we can enjoy sounds more than a million times louder than that. And even if the multiple is approaching a thousand million, our ears will still work, for a short while. But even more extraordinary is the ability of this ear-brain combination to sort, recognise and appreciate incredibly fine differences in sound, position and direction, distance and even height. These are abilities that encompass so many variables that we are out of the scientific field completely and we are into art and emotion. 
Since those days in the mid-60s, all of our ears have been conditioned to listening to various types of stereo, and in professional audio, we have been developing and improving loudspeaker systems, all based around producing the sound from two or more locations. The assumption, all the time, has been that multi-speaker arrays is the right way to listen to spatial and stereo sound. What is stereo, really? It's quite clear that listeners have diverse expectations about what they consider as stereo, and surprisingly, diverse views as to what stereo really is. The real answer, as it is so often the case in audio, is that there are as many answers as there are listeners. The whole subject has become distorted by the vast number of stereo recordings that succeed in so many different ways. From the extremes of what I prefer to call two-speaker mono, where location and direction are all important, to the other extreme, where direction is totally subservient to space and depth. Blumline Alan Blumline came to the subject of spatial sound reproduction from an odd direction. He thought that they could achieve more realism in the cinema if the sound followed the action. His initial ideas involved separate recordings and multiple loudspeakers. He experimented with microphones set up at 90 degrees to one another, and the technique was so successful that to this day it's called the Blumline Pair. Just to backtrack a little, Blumline was working for HMV in the late 1920s as a junior engineer, and he quickly made a name for himself by introducing improvements in disc cutting technology. HMV became EMI in 1931, but in the very early 1930s, his interest turns to directional audio and his experiments in binaural. His experiments quickly led to the simplistic theories of sum and difference, and listening to the results of recordings made that way on two or three loudspeakers. The recording technique should be familiar. A cardioid microphone faces the performing ensemble. A figure eight microphone is placed close to the cardioid with its axis at right angles. The cardioid microphone picks up the whole ensemble, that is, left and right, or left plus right. The figure 8 microphone picks up left from the left and an inverted right, minus right, from the right, because the other side of the figure 8 microphone is in opposite polarity, so the signal from the mic is left minus right. If the signals from the two mics are added together, you get left plus right plus left minus right, which ends up as left, the rights cancel out. And if you subtract the figure 8 mic from the cardioid, you get left plus right minus left minus right, which results in right, the lefts cancel out. And that's all there is to sum and difference. Well, almost, but more of that a little later. Stand back and listen. It's interesting and slightly sad that after Blumline's death in 1942, EMI considered that binaural sound was not worth pursuing, and a great mass of work by Blundline and Trot was shelved, only to be revived by commercial pressures from the Americans in the very late 1950s. When stereo recording started seriously in the 1960s, we used five-way switches on the channels in the mixer so that we had the ability to place the audio signal left, left-centre, centre, right-centre and right. Listening to the results on studio monitors, set up 1.6 metres apart, the results were impressive, and little thought was given to anything beyond that simple directional location information. 
However, at the same time, we engineers were experimenting with time delays and phasing, and often produced unpredictable directional effects. But the equipment was primitive and frankly, we did not have the time to look deeper into it. I carried out some more serious work on directional sensing in 1975 at my brother's studio. We had a newly invented digital delay module and I set up some experiments using recorded speech and introducing time delays in one side. Of course, this is old hat nowadays and obvious, but in 1975 it was novel. We found that to a person sitting in the classic sweet spot we could manipulate the voice to come from almost anywhere, even from beyond the loudspeakers. Later, more careful work showed that timing directional clues were most effective in the mid-range, no surprise there, and that under the right conditions they were very much more pervasive than the simple pan pot that I had invented, along with others I'm sure, back in 1965-1966. But recording techniques had started to become fixed by this time. The big developments were in tape machines, where up to 32 tracks became common. Mixing consoles were sophisticated, but still catered for stereo by resistive panning between buses. The thinking classical recordists had always looked warily at the pan pot, and I had it pointed out to me, quite forcibly, that such techniques were simplistic and false. A lot of engineers, particularly in the big studios, notably Decker and EMI, experimented with stereo mic arrangements, using crossed pairs and variations on some and difference and Blumline pairs. But of course, they were all forced to work with the conventional two-speaker stereo monitoring, with varying success. Over the years, recording techniques have become less polarised and many popular orchestral recordings are produced using a combination of spot microphones and stereo pairs. And to a very large extent, the results are big and spacious when listened to on a properly set up replay system. And if your head is nailed in the exact sweet spot, But to return to sum and difference. That simplistic maths mentioned before is trotted out to engineers time after time. And in reality is that it's a poor approximation. Hello, Joe here. The next paragraph refers to an image of the Blumline technique um, that we talked about earlier in this episode. It's the standard Blumline technique. If you want to see the image, you can find it on the lecture on Ted's website. Or you can just Google the Blumline technique and you will find a very similar image. And it's easy to see why. In this simple diagram, the cardioid microphone is picking up the whole of the choir. Previously, in that oversimplified maths, this mic is picking up left plus right. So far, so good. The figure 8 microphone, while it's true that it's picking up left and right, the same as the cardioid mic, it's picking up a whole lot of other sounds as well. And even considering this very simple sketch, the arithmetic doesn't stand up. The derived left, mic 1 plus mic 2, would be left plus right plus FL plus SP left minus FR plus SPR right. (laughs) This is Joe again, and I'm lost too. I just don't worry about it. And that's just for starters, with an oversimplified diagram. In the real world, we are dealing with a much more complex difference between the left, received by mic 1, and the left received by mic 2. And here we are, looking at it in two dimensions only. What I'm getting at is that while mid-side or summon difference recording is very elegant, and it works, 
its conversion to left-right and its replay on a two-speaker system is a poor approximation. However, let's not lose sight of the idea of mid-side recording because these simple manipulations can be extremely useful even if they are not perfect. After all, they are the backbone of all ambisonic, tetrahedral and surround sound and all other wonder systems. Air sound. The original idea for air sound came from a time in 2003 when I was planning a recording of some voices and in one of those small hours moments dreamed of hearing the playbacks on a loudspeaker system that mirrored the mid-side microphones that I was planning to use. The idea felt feasible and the next day I made a loudspeaker array out of cardboard tubes and connected it up via a bird's nest of cables and amplifiers and it produced a sort of stereo from a single array. To cut a long story short, Eric, my business partner, and myself experimented and researched for many months and came up with a range of prototype loudspeakers, varying from those as small as a mobile phone up to a system that would serve as a serious PA. And what is an air sound system? It is a combination of loudspeakers consisting of a monopole loudspeaker reproducing a main sound directly towards the listening area, and a dipole loudspeaker or pair of loudspeakers reproducing spatial sound to the right and left. It is effectively a single point source producing sound that to the ears of the listener is spatial and stereophonic with both depth and positioning. Now for a heretical statement. I am convinced that pure directional information in sound reproduction is of very little value at all. My reason for making that statement is the result of 40 plus years of listening to sound critically as part of the process of both making recordings and designing sound recording and reproducing equipment. Many times over those years I have listened to performances and demonstrations of stereo and all the derivatives including tetrahedral, quad, 7.1 and lots of others. And apart from the gee whiz demos where a train runs across the stage or an obvious soloist jumps up on the right, the actual directional information is hardly relevant, and in most cases its accuracy is very much Emperor's New Clothes. In any case, we must be pragmatic, we must be honest about the times we live in. Most entertainment has a video dominant content. Even pure concerts are made to be visually beautiful and exciting. We sit and watch a large LED or plasma screen and expect to hear beautiful spacious sound while we watch about 4 degrees in front of us. Think about that and the whole concept of surround sound with multiple loudspeakers becomes, in my opinion, laughable. The ideas behind surround sound are all involved with the concept of immersion in the experience. We need to be involved with the performance, so therefore the sound should come from all around. But why? We can get intellectually and emotionally involved in something on television where all the sensory input comes from the front. And doesn't sensory input come from the front in real life? My view is that the most directional input comes from the visual stimulus reinforced by audio clues. More important than pure directional clues is the sense of space, the environment in which the sound sits, and this is where air sound comes into its own. An air sound reproduction system has the ability to allow listeners to hear the same and correct spatial environment from anywhere in the room. Any form of multi-speaker array suffers from an insurmountable problem. 
While momentary involvement is possible for a listener bolted to any sweet spot, any movement away from the sweet spot will destroy the image, and the more loudspeakers, the worse the problem. This is a truism. It's an uncomfortable fact that cannot be faced by designers. Fatigue. An equally important superiority of air sound over any other system is the ease of listening. When a listener sits listening to a conventional two-speaker system, unless the head is bolted in place, he will move slightly off-axis. This movement upsets the image created in the brain, making the brain work harder, leading to listening fatigue. In the case of surround and 5.1 system, the situation is far worse, with fatigue being normal as the brain fights to maintain a spatial image. With air sound, the image is naturally produced in the environment and fatigue is minimised. This is particularly noticeable when watching a feature film. The images and sounds remain fresh and vibrant to the end. Early in the development of air sound, I was asked several times if the system could be expanded to provide surround sound. Theoretically, the answer is yes, and I built systems making use of existing 5.1 recordings to demonstrate the fact, and I was surprised at first how listeners to the demos failed to get excited over the extended systems. The reason was that the basic single air sound array provided a very satisfactory sound system for feature films, and there was no significant advantage to adding further spatial image at the rear. Air sound and record production. But this talk is about aspects of record production, and immediately we had some prototype air sound systems working. I was sure that this way of listening to sound would become important to the way that records are made. More recently, I realised that this is even more true than I thought. 95% of loudspeaker-based systems at the moment are incapable of reproducing stereo sound. In fact, at least 70% of those are systems with loudspeakers so close together that no listener can resolve the image. Just the odd few are set up in people's sitting rooms with a chair strategically placed equidistant between the loudspeakers and the owner can enjoy the music. Everyone else hears some sort of mashed mono complete with timing distortions and cancellations. So today's record producer has a thankless job. He works harder to produce a product that is commercially and aesthetically right and will sound right on the studio speakers, the near-field monitors and on a car radio, but at the back of his mind he knows that most people will hear it on inferior headphones, ghastly handheld devices or ghetto blasters. Well, we have made a start to change that. Now this is not meant to be a sales pitch by any means, but my Orbit Sound Company has products on the market that demonstrate air sound and are major improvements over conventional systems of similar price. The commercial sell is quite a soft one, but we are finding that a large percentage of buyers realise the level of improvement quickly and appreciate the clarity of space of the sound. Now that we can see the direction and success of the sales, I can foresee a new dimension for record producers. There will be significant numbers of air sound systems in the next year or so. In fact, I'm certain that these will become the majority over two-speaker systems. Why? Listen to a modern pop record on a T12 and you can hear why. The first notable thing is the way a central voice sounds. It sounds clean and undistorted and positioned well forward. And it sounds exactly the same from any listening point. 
then notice the balance and depth of the rest of the sound. Of course, this is dependent on the producer, and in many cases, there will be subtleties that were inaudible on a two-speaker system. In the studio, research has shown that monitoring on a powerful air sound system, the engineer can achieve a good voice sound very much quicker and with less listening fatigue than with conventional systems. I'm not advocating the complete replacement of two-speaker monitoring. After all, two-speaker monitoring works fine if the conditions are perfect. It's just that air sound systems sound right all the time. Okay, there we have it. Episode number five, Perceptions in Record Production. And I hope you enjoyed that. Um, we have a couple more of these episodes to go. And like I said the other week, I'm building up quite a collection of exciting interviews uh, in the meantime while you're listening to these. Um, in fact, I've got some great people that I'm really excited to share with you. So there's uh, hopefully a lot to come. That just leaves me to say, if you'd like to get in contact with me for any reason, you can do that. My website is allyouneedisdrums.com. And my email address is joe at allyouneedisdrums.com. Uh, you can contact me through the website too. And you can also find out about the isolated drums I give away and all of the sessions stuff I do and everything like that on there. Feedback for the podcast is always welcome, as is uh, guest suggestions. So all of that kind of stuff. And um, feel free to get in contact. I'm just a human at the end of an email address. I'd like to say a huge thank you to Adam Mallet for the artwork he supplies for the podcast, to Joe Kane for the intro and outro music, and to Rory Hancock for editing and uploading the podcast and making it all possible. And most of all, thank you to you for listening. We'll be back next week with some more. Goodbye. Goodbye.